the encouragement and the conviction that we gain from, from our fellowship. Uh, and I hope that this, this lesson can be as helpful toward all those things and, and continue to build all those things as it has been for me, me personally in the time that uh, I've gotten to think about these things. Um, so 1 Kings 19 uh, may be a familiar account uh, that you've at least heard something about. Uh, so just to put us in some context here, Elijah in chapter 18, uh, a little bit more of a famous account, had just had this like showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, uh, where the prophets of Baal set up an altar and Elijah repaired an altar of the Lord, and they each called on their God, Elijah called on the true God, to bring down fire to consume the sacrifice. And uh, after um, the false prophets of Baal had been crying out from the beginning of sunrise to uh, well beyond noon, uh, Elijah prays to the Lord and fire comes down and consumes the sacrifice. Um, but as is, you can see from the title, um, in 1 Kings 19, things take a surprising twist from what you would expect if you weren't already familiar with the story. Um, so that's what we'll be uh, delving into today. But I do want to review some history of kind of where we are in, in time frame. Uh, remember that this is during the reign of Ahab. So it, it's been about 60 years since the split of the kingdom of Israel, uh, 60 years since Solomon died. And that would mean that there would probably be some people still living who had actually been alive during the reign of Solomon. Uh, Judah has been going through this great spiritual renaissance under the reign of King Asa, whereas Israel, every one of these kings was getting worse and worse. They were, each of them, outdoing each other, actually, in turning away from God. And Ahab was the worst of all of them in 1 Kings 16. So while Israel was catastrophically collapsing, Judah was going through this great rejuvenating restoration of God's law and following God. And Elijah came in the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. While Ahab was, uh, again, outdoing the kings before him in wickedness, uh, Elijah, you remember in chapter 17, came on the scene praying to God that there be uh, rain withheld from the land, which lasted three and a half years. And that's what led into God telling Elijah then to go to Ahab and have this showdown again on Mount Carmel. Uh, so let's pick up on chapter uh, 19. That would help if I turned there in my Bible as well. Uh, so in chapter, in chapter 19, you remember that how this all ended is Elijah had prayed again for rain to come on the land, and God sent uh, a great storm. And in the midst of this storm, he had told uh, Ahab to get on his chariot and go back to Jezreel. And Elijah even, in verse 46, Elijah ran ahead of his chariot to Jezreel, seemingly with this great sense of zeal for the kind of potential reforms that maybe he could work with uh, Ahab to make to the nation. So let's see what happens now in chapter 19, 1 through 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and even more, better not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. So this isn't the first we've heard of Jezebel. If you go back to chapter 16, chapter 16, verse 31, uh, when it's 
when it's being described how uh, wicked Ahab was, it says it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal uh, and worshipped him. You can kind of get the sense of it from uh, Jezebel's father's name, Ethbaal, but Baal was really one of the gods of the Sidonians, so Jezebel would have been very closely associated with this idol god, uh, Baal. And so you look at chapter 19 again, uh, verse 2, and you look at the language of Jezebel when when she says, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. Uh, She clearly has been totally unfazed by everything that Elijah had done, totally unconvinced that uh, Baal was not a true God. And really, Elijah was suffering the consequence of an investment that he had made that God within his law had warned against and really forbid. And now he was suffering the consequence more long-term for that investment. Jezebel throughout uh, the king's account will stomp out every single conviction that Ahab has that could have led to these great reforms in the nation. And this is really just the beginning of where we see that, this aggressive personality uh, that overtook these uh, potential things that could have happened with with Elijah. Um, Now, I want to think about this with verses 1 through 4. Why did this make Elijah afraid? You know, he had demonstrated all of this courage in the previous chapters we've seen, I mean, he stood face-to-face with Ahab and rebuked him to his face without backing down. He ordered the prophets of Baal uh, to be uh, slain. So he's demonstrated all this previous courage. Why would, at this threat, especially after all of these good things have been accomplished, why get afraid now, right? Uh, And I think, actually, as we really think about Elijah's mentality and things that had happened, it begins to make more sense. Uh, the more that you invest and sacrifice for something or someone, uh, especially if, if it's something like a business venture and somebody takes out like their life savings and invests everything they have in it, when their hope is fully set on that one thing to succeed and it fails and it collapses, the more you've invested in something, the more power it has to impact you the more power that has to devastate you when it fails. Some people, when their business ventures fail, when they invest everything that they have in it, if it seems like it's going to succeed at first, but then it just totally collapses, sometimes people resort to killing themselves because they've absolutely lost hope that this one thing that they put all their chips on the table for has totally failed. You remember everything that Elijah had sacrificed before this leading to this, again, showdown on Mount Carmel. We don't get the impression that Elijah was a married man. He had left Israel for a time, had to be fed by ravens, by a brook, went to the land of Sidon to be fed by a widow. You imagine all the hope that he would have that this event would have surely triggered true and significant change in Israel. That if anything was going to get to change the people's hearts and bring them back to God, this was it. And if you look at uh, chapter 18 again, Uh, Look at verse 37, and I think here you get this hope that Elijah had with Mount Carmel, that once he hears this from Jezebel, it's like nothing's actually really been accomplished. In verse 37, he says, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. But then Jezebel in 19 verse 2 just overrides anything that it seems was accomplished with all these great things that God had done. 
And you imagine Elijah could be thinking, if that did not change things, what else could God possibly do? What, what else is there? Because that was so far beyond any requirements of law that God had put himself under by covenant. It was so far beyond anything that anybody could have anticipated. And it was such a clear and evident testimony, right? Um, so moving, moving on to verse 3. He goes to uh, Beersheba and drops off his servant there. Um, going back, back to this map, Beersheba is the bottom circle there in the land of Judah. You notice that's fairly deep into the Judean territory. So he doesn't just drop off his servant at the border. He makes this long journey down to Judah and drops off his servant there and then continues on outside of where this map goes into the wilderness where we request that he might die. Really just the main thing with where he puts his servant, Elijah always knew that living in Judah and fleeing there to start a new life, he always knew by this that that was an option. You think about how appealing that would have been. Again, Judah is going through a spiritual renaissance. Everything is great in Judah. The Levites are teaching again. The temple system is up and running. People are seeking the Lord. The, the leadership and the government is seeking the Lord. It's like if you want to serve God, that's the place that most ideally you would think you would want to be. So Elijah was always aware of that option. But with that, why wouldn't he stay in Judah then? Why wouldn't he stay in Judah? I think this is an Old Testament type of Paul's attitude in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 14 and 15, or 12 and 13. So when Paul's writing to the Corinthians, who he was very concerned about, their spiritual condition, he mentions that he had an open door to preach the gospel in a place called Troas. But because he had not heard from Titus, who was coming from Corinth, because he hadn't heard from Titus about the Corinthians, he could not teach in Troas or pursue that open door because of his concern for the Corinthians. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, he then tells them later, you are in our hearts both to live together and to die together. Doesn't that make sense that when you've invested so much emotionally into somebody or even like some people, that when it seems like everything that you've hoped they would be, when it seems like all of that hope is failing, does going somewhere else and just being around some other people who are doing okay, does that just solve the problem or the hurt that that causes in the heart? really doesn't actually solve the problem. So in verse 4, he goes and he goes under this juniper tree and he requests that he might die. And really what he's saying when he says, I'm not better than my father's, he's telling God that this is a situation that is more difficult than anything that any person before him has ever had to face. And he's right. He's right about that. There's never been a situation in Israel before where the nation was so far away from God, where they were so aggressively pursuing prophets to kill them, and where it seems like wickedness had an unyielding hold on the nation. He's right. So he requests that he might die, but there's, before we read any more of the story, a couple things about this that I think are important to note. Elijah would rather die than compromise his love for Israel. He would rather die than compromise his love for Israel. That includes Ahab. That includes the other people in the nation who are not serving God and rebelling against him. He would rather die than loosen his grip on how passionately he loves those, those people. 
The second thing, too, is he would rather die than compromise his convictions. You know, he could have spent time in Judah. He could have gone to Judah and just enjoyed his time there and said, you know what, I'm just going to forget about it. I'm not worried about Israel. They've been a problem to me ever since I became a prophet. I'm going to go somewhere else, but he doesn't do that. And he could have decided, you know what, this serving God thing is just not working out for me. It's putting so many more problems in my life, and now my life is actually being threatened. I just don't seem to be getting anything out of this. So I'm just going to check out and go into one of these other nations and just really forget about the God of Israel, right? He doesn't do any of those things. His only solution is, his only solution for relief is to die. It's the only way out. So let's see how God renews him uh, from this condition. We'll read verses 5 through 8 to start here. He lay down and slept under the juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Uh, So just a couple things about this before we look at what happened at Horeb itself. Uh, God never expresses disappointment in Elijah in this entire account. He doesn't rebuke Elijah. He doesn't try to, like, teach Elijah some big lesson, like, verbally. There will be a lesson that will teach, but it's not, like, a big sermon or anything like that. The thing that's important to note is God doesn't express any disappointment at all that Elijah has ran away from Israel. What he actually does express is patient understanding. And there's not many times that the narrative will leave Israel. There was one other time that happened, and it was in chapter 17, when Elijah had to leave Israel to be provided for by ravens when God had caused the famine to be on the land of Israel. And it's interesting, you imagine that there were probably some pretty urgent things that were happening in Israel. And you imagine like, The way the story could go is Elijah leaves and, okay, we don't have time to deal with Elijah's 40-day checkout. We've got to go back and see some of these things that are happening in Israel. But instead, it's like everything slows down. It's like time slows down in the narrative. Everything comes to a halt. Now, I don't don't understand this as well as maybe some of you parents, but I've known of situations where parents hear about some emergency with their children And it doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter how important the things are that they're doing. They'll drop everything immediately and they'll go to where their their children are or their child is to help them and be with them. You remember in chapter 17, again, that Elijah was fed by ravens. But if you look at verse 7, who was it who was feeding Elijah here? It was as close as God could possibly get to being there himself. It wasn't Michael the archangel. It wasn't some other angel under God's authority. It was his own personal representative that was feeding him bread and water. You notice how well God could deal with this in verse 8. This food that he had fed Elijah with apparently was sufficient to, like Moses, when he was on uh, Mount Sinai, It sustained him in an obviously miraculous way for a huge frame of time. The idea is just eating this one meal sustained him for this 40-day period where he journeyed to Mount Horeb. 
Um, so God, God could handle it. And Elijah was open and honest with God. And he was seeking just to be close with God. Because Horeb, that, that mountain, it went by another name when it was first uh, introduced in the biblical account. Horeb is Sinai. In Exodus and Deuteronomy and the books of the Bible that talk about the journey of Israel to Sinai and from it, Horeb and Sinai are really interchangeable terms. Deuteronomy chapter 1 uh, uses that term Horeb to describe Sinai. And you think, like, why would Elijah, of all places he could go, think, why would he go to Sinai, of all places? Why Sinai? What's significant about that place? That's where God first appeared to Israel. It's where it all began. And I think it's just so incredible that Elijah is suffering so intensely, emotionally. He's obviously just totally drained. And he doesn't want to get away from God. He doesn't think that God is the source of his problems. He wants to get as close as he possibly can to God in his suffering. That's Elijah's great solution. If he can't die, which I think in his mind, that was, take me, God, to you. The second best thing is, let me go to Sinai then and be as close as I can be while I'm here. Verse 9 through uh, 14. And he came to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. First thing here is... Having more zeal for God does mean that there's more potential for discouragement and to become disheartened. Um, I've known of a lot of preachers who get like burnt out uh, because a lot of preachers will try to serve the brethren, but I think actually the very lesson here is meant to address this idea of just getting worn out from serving others and not getting as maybe quick a response as you hope for, or you're hoping that certain things will cause radical change, but it doesn't actually end up happening, and you're just left with disappointment. Um, I think the lesson that God teaches Elijah here is actually meant to address that very disappointment. But I think that's, that really is the first thing here, is more zeal means more potential for disappointment, right? And it's just like the initial point from the beginning of the chapter. The more you invest in something, the more it has the ability to impact and devastate your heart. It can impact you more than just if you've had it as a side thing among your many other investments, right? So what's the significance of these things that God does uh, here? You know, there was, there was another time 
when this mountain was consumed with wind and tempest, fire and quaking. And again, that was back when Israel was all at the foot of the mountain as they saw God descend in some kind of form to this mountain. And it was consumed in a terrifying picture of a blazing tempest and fire. So these are things that had really happened before at some time in history that may have brought Elijah's memory back to those things. But you notice in verse 11, even though this wind was so strong, there's a careful note, the Lord was not actually in that wind. And you have to think, like, how strong does wind have to be to actually break rocks? Like, I've been on cliff sides where the wind was so strong that I could hardly even, like, stand on my feet, but there weren't any rocks that were breaking. Like, not even, that wasn't even a thought that we had, right? So for the wind to be so strong that it was rending the mountain to pieces and, like, shattering rocks, I don't know if this is, like, 500 miles an hour or something. Like, I have no idea how strong this would have to be, but... I imagine that this would have been absolutely terrifying to hear this outside the little cave that he was staying in, and then comes the earthquake, and then comes the fire. But again, the notation is the same every time. God's not actually in the wind or the earthquake or the fire. But then at the end, in verse uh, 12, other translations will say the sound of like a quiet whisper. This still, small voice, I think is the ESV translation, a still, small voice. I think really the lesson is, what is God's covenant really all about? What is the nature of God's power? Like, is God's power in these great, magnificent acts? Like, again, you think about Mount Carmel. Fire came out of the sky, consumed the altar and everything on it. Everybody's amazed and they confess, the Lord alone is God. Jehovah is God. And it looks like this is it. The nation is surely going to change. But is that really where God's power is? Is that how God really cultivates real change and conviction? And you remember when all of this had happened when Israel was at the base of this mountain and they saw all these things, right? Did that, that really change them? Did that really do anything for them to any, in any way create lasting, deep convictions in their hearts? The generation that saw those things were marked as one of the most unfaithful generations in the history of all Israel. And they saw it with their eyes. So I think when God asks the question again at the end, it's a little bit different. Is this really what God's covenant is all about? You know, so often a popular ideology to fall into is, I want as much of God's covenant for me, and I want as little of it that involves them as possible. And if I can just be alone with God, just me and God, and not have to involve all these other people in this covenant, that's what I'm looking for. And what we're going to see is God, I think, is going to clarify the covenant is with the people where they are, as they are. Go back and serve. So 15 through 21, let's look at his returning. The Lord said to him, Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint his prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from, from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
So he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat while he was plowing with uh, 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. So if God could tear up mountains with wind, do you think he has the power to take care of Ahab and the wickedness that's perpetuating in his, nature, in his own nation? I think one thing that Elijah needed to understand is all of this power that God had was not just lying dormant. It's not as if God was not going to do anything about any of this. How do you help somebody who's lost their hope or losing their hope to be reinvigorated with new hope? God assures Elijah, this has an end. And his role in the nation is a necessary place in this reaching a conclusion. Ahab and Jezebel are not just going to be allowed to continue their control and their grip on the nation. God's going to take care of it. So he gives them reassurance that judgment is coming and that he has an essential role in that judgment, but also the impact that he's having on the nation in ways he does not even understand. You remember when he said, what are you doing here, Elijah? One of these things that he says is, I'm the only one left. This is it. You imagine how easy it would be to lose sight of these greater things that God was doing in unseen ways. And in verse, uh, in verse 18, I think the idea is Elijah's efforts not only were not fruitless, not only were they not fruitless, just as Israel in the south, Judah, was going through a renaissance, Israel in the north was going through a renaissance. Elijah's efforts, the one man, enduring and returning and patiently living by the word of God, was inspiring by the work of God and the power of God, thousands of people to have fortitude in their faith to serve the Lord alone, to not kiss the hand of Baal, in a sense. And you look at how eager Elisha was. Do you think Elijah, when he fled from Israel, thought anyone would want to take up his mantle? I mean, Jezebel just threatened him that by this time tomorrow, you're dead. And obviously that didn't work out, did it? Um, but do you think he would have imagined that anybody would be so eager to follow him? So not only was Elijah reminded about this impact that he was having on the nation, that conclusion that was coming in judgment, but also the very real impact that he was having on people like Elisha who were eager to take up the mantle and continue it on. This ushered in a whole new era of prophets. Before Elijah and just this kind of general time frame, prophets weren't targeted to be put to death. That wasn't the norm. Uh, really what happened with prophets is even if they weren't people you listened to, they were still respected and they were honored in the nation still. Really this time frame was where the shift occurs that prophets were not going to be well received and even beyond that would be targeted and persecuted and put to death. And Elijah coming back and continuing to serve God in the midst of this nation, even after being threatened, would really cause a new generation of prophets to rise up who would be willing to endure anything. 
to serve God. And Israel from this day forward would never lack a prophet to speak on God's behalf to the end of each side of the nation of Israel. It ushered in a new era. So I want to make some applications of this uh, to bring the lesson to a close. Um, Turn to Galatians chapter 6. The first application is really with Ahab um, and how he allowed Jezebel uh, to stomp out the spark of conviction that he had when he ran or when Elijah ran before him to uh, Jezreel. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Uh, it says, Do not be, be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his, to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ahab ultimately... There's never any substantial change in Ahab's life despite all the ways that Elijah and the prophets were interacting with with Ahab. Every one of Ahab's convictions were kind of like flashes in a pan. I don't know if you ever heard that term, flash in a pan, but it comes from uh, flintlock musket rifles. And the idea is there was a pan where the gunpowder would sit, and if you pulled the trigger and the gunpowder went off but the bullet didn't fire, it was a flash in the pan. So it, it looked great. It looked like, you know, the flash was going to shoot something, but nothing actually happened. And that's usually to describe things that have like a great beginning, you know, and it seems like something's going to come, but nothing actually happens. It's just a flash in the pan. Really, I think this gives us the answer in Galatians chapter 6, why we have these flash in the pan convictions. Ahab was confronted with the problem separating him from his faith in God. And that was Jezebel. And Ahab could have done something about it as soon as, she, uh, as soon as she decided to continue serving Baal. That was the sign right there. Let's get Jezebel out of this nation. This, this cannot go on, right? But he allowed it to continue. Um, when we want to serve God, when we really make a determination to want to please him, there will be things in our lives that we have enslaved ourselves to that will not allow us to serve God without a fight. Satan doesn't let us just escape his dominion without some resistance, right? I think a good example of this is when I was a teenager, I would go to like these Bible camps and stuff, and you know, I would, I would oftentimes have these like grand convictions. I would you know, be immersed in like a week of Bible studies in this camp and be away from home and just be really inspired and really convicted about ways I knew I needed to reform my life. I knew deep down I wasn't serving God faithfully. And I would come home, and all of it within about two days would just go away. And when I was about 16, I got in this serious ATV accident for about, for about 10 or 15 minutes. I was completely convinced I was going to die. So in my mind, I was praying to God and asking for his forgiveness, and I was telling him, you know, God, if you let me live, I'll get my life right. I get out of the hospital, I go home, back at it again. Because I wasn't confronting the things of the flesh that I was investing myself in that were enslaving me. And I wasn't paying attention. And really what that shows is my convictions were not touching my heart. My convictions were not touching my heart. I don't know if you have those kinds of flash-in-the-pan convictions where, like, you come to an assembly and, like, you think, like, wow, I got to make some changes. And then within the same week, it's like, just back to normal back to routine. 
I want to think in the same account what we learned about how to actually not fall into that trap. Um, and here's really the thing is God's power is in convictions cultivated through an actively patient faith. And that's, that's in contrast to circumstantial convictions. Like circumstantial convictions can be a good jump start to like making some movements toward the Lord. But if that's all it is, People who have those convictions and maybe do some impressive things fall away like anybody else. Turn to uh, Luke chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, when I was younger as well, and again, like my attitude, I just, I wasted my youth not serving the Lord. Um, But I would see people who had come out of the world, um, they would be like much older, they would be baptized, and they would be like so passionate. And I would think to myself like, wow, Boy, I'm, I'm really at a disadvantage. You know, like they've, they've come out of like sinful living and they really get it and I've just lived this safe and protected life and I guess I'm just doomed to not be very convicted compared to them, right? Maybe some of you have kind of had those thoughts too, but I, I, I really had those thoughts and I would think like, man, they're, they're set up to succeed and I'm not, right? Well, look at Luke chapter 2, 39 and 40. When they had performed everything according to the law, of the Lord, and that is Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph. They returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. The child, and that obviously would be Jesus, continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Look at verse 52 as well, the last verse of the chapter. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. You think Jesus lived a pretty sheltered life? You know, do you think Jesus dealt with like circumstantial suffering and you know, got into like lots of trouble where there were things pushing him to be convicted? Or were Jesus' parents doing the best they could in a very safe society to try to raise him to love the Lord? And was he then through his youth just investing himself as much as he possibly could in patience to cultivate deeper and deeper convictions in what he knew to be true in God's word? Convictions that come through patience and a determination to make choices, not on the basis of just how I feel in a day or like a circumstance pushing me externally, but within myself having the faith to think, I know who God is. I know how valuable my faith is to God. I understand how important the kingdom of heaven is. So you know what? Even though there's other things that may feel more pleasurable that I can be investing myself in, I know by faith that this is just the more important thing. That conviction, that conviction is what it means to fear the Lord. That conviction is that. That's what that means. God's power is in convictions cultivated through an actively patient faith. Elijah actually contrasts Ahab in 1 Kings 19. Ahab had been investing himself in the flesh and sowing to the flesh. So it was going to take a lot more than just one instance of God showing some impressive thing by sight to change Ahab's heart. Elijah had been sowing to the Spirit, and it was going to take a lot more than Jezebel threatening him to take him away from living a life based in the Spirit. See that contrast? Because Elijah had been patiently, excruciatingly, choosing to discipline himself in the love of his God. He was prepared to be honest and open with God and to just automatically go to Sinai and have an encounter with God. And that rooted his faith more and more. And then while teaching others, he was then being taught himself. And that leads us in the last point. Suffering then pushes us 
to encounter the Lord and become more unified with him. It's interesting that the narrative goes away from Israel when Elijah leaves because it's almost like as much as Ahab may not be benefiting at all from all this stuff God was doing, Elijah was. And Elijah, just him all by himself, learning and taking in what God was doing and learning from God's character and reflecting on these lessons, 7,000 people that he was unaware of were inspired to serve God alone. And then when you get to Elisha, we're going to see that there were just cities of prophets everywhere in Israel. How did that happen? Where did this come from? Jericho becomes a city of prophets. How does that happen? Because one man continued to serve the Lord and so did the Spirit, even in suffering. And in that suffering, he chose not to take it easy in Judah and check out, but to seek the Lord and to be open. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and this will be the last scripture we'll look at for the lesson. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's reflecting on these, this great vision he had of God that just inspired him and it's just very, very magnificent and impressive. But then he talks about how a messenger at the end of the verse was sent to torment him, to keep him from exalting himself. And in verse 8, it says, Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Suffering pushes us to encounter the Lord. I don't mean that like we hear God's voice in our head or anything like that, you know? But I mean like the psalmists. Like, in their suffering, they would push harder to know God. They would push the world out of their perspective and they would realize the world's not going to help me now. You know, that's, that's just not the solution. It's not going to relieve what's, what's happening. It's not going to comfort me or teach me anything. I've got to seek the Lord. I've got to seek his counsel. So, an example of this. Somebody very close to me, very dear to me in Minnesota, in the past has had, like, you know, a long time ago in their past, some issues with brethren and their relationships with brethren that's left, like, long-term difficulties in how they relate to brethren now. And... They've had some recent interactions that have really challenged them and challenged them to the point where they were almost tempted to revert back to old ways of thinking. And as we talked, he realized that this was an answer to his prayers that was going to equip him to have a better sense of faith to serve others and have more wisdom for the future. That's the power of God. That is the power of God. You know, this congregation here, there's various trials and suffering that the members here are going through. And that's, that's hard. And it pushes us maybe even to the point where we're tempted to revert back maybe to old ways of thinking, not draw closer to God. You know, we've been praying for a lot of things as a group. You know, the suffering that's happening here now, what if God is using that to equip us into a new era of faith, just like Elijah, through his suffering, was equipping other prophets into a new era of endurance. Paul would say at the beginning of Corinthians that God is a God of comfort in a way that through the, the way we receive comfort, we're equipped then to give other people the same consolation we first have received from God ourselves. God turns suffering into a way to become more unified with him. And just like Elijah, he didn't respond flawlessly to Jezebel's threat. Elijah doesn't look like a great enduring hero in this account, at least. That didn't matter. God was patient. 
And God was still going to ensure he was glorified in gently and patiently handling the issues in Elijah's faith. And the same with us. Even while we suffer, we're not going to handle everything perfectly. We may even be afraid and draw back. Even through that, God can still be glorified. So that's where we'll end the lesson for this morning. Um, If you're here and um, you're not a Christian, God is spending the resource of his glory, his energy, his emotions, to strive to redeem you. If you've made up your mind that you need to obey the gospel, uh, don't let another day go by being separated from God and living in your sin. And if you're here and just need the prayers and encouragement of the church here, please bring that forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.